Good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, we begin our new series on uh, John, the Gospel of John, uh, starting from John chapter 18. Uh, so I wonder if you could turn with me, please, to John chapter 18, and we're looking at the first 12 verses today. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word, and we ask that you speak to us now uh, as we look at your Word together. We pray that you'll show us Jesus and help us to love him and follow him and trust him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if there's anyone here who likes a little bit too much to be in control. I'm not saying you need to be in charge of everything. It's not that everyone needs to tell you how good or how competent or how wonderful you are. It's not that you mind other people taking leadership as long as you're in control of what's going on in your own life. As long as there's no serious surprises along the way. As long as you feel like it's your hand on the steering wheel because someone's hand better be there and there's no better someone for that someone to be as far as you are concerned than you. And when it's not, well, you're tempted to do things that are sinful. Well, today we are looking at two main characters, someone who really is in control and deserves to be, someone who would like to be but isn't. The first character, of course, is Jesus himself. Uh, it's now late at night, the night before he is to be crucified. Jesus and his disciples have shared their last supper together. He's washed their feet to set them an example of service to one another. He's warned them that he's going to be betrayed and he's even identified his betrayer. He's told them he's going away and commanded them to love one another. Uh, Peter had insisted he would follow him wherever he went. I will lay down my life for you, he had said. But Jesus' words in reply had been cutting. Will you, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow until you have denied me three times. Uh, Jesus has gone on to, to comfort his disciples, to tell them he's going to prepare a place for them. The only way to get to the place where he's going to the Father was through him. He promised to send them the Holy Spirit. He urged them to remain in him, warn them about persecution from the world. And then he had prayed. He had prayed that, that, that he would be glorified in the events that follow and that he might glorify the Father. He had prayed for his disciples that they would be one. He had prayed that the Father would protect them, even as he had protected him while he had been with them. He prayed that the Father would sanctify them by the truth of his word. He had prayed that those whom the Father had given him would be with him where he would go and see his eternal glory. He had taught his disciples. He had prayed for them. And now, in these next few chapters, he is going to die for them. So in chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. Uh, the Kidron Valley is a valley outside Jerusalem uh, on the east. Right? You come out of Jerusalem, you go down the Kidron Valley. Uh, on the other side, when you come up, it's the Mount of Olives. Uh, the Kidron itself was a stream, only an intermittent stream that flowed in the rainy season. Uh, and Jesus and his disciples uh, would go down through this valley. Uh, and uh, you come up, uh, and there on the other side of the valley uh, is a garden that the other Gospels named the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, let me just show you a video uh, so that you can see uh, where that is in Jerusalem today. Uh, let me just show you geographically the garden in its context. Uh, zooming into Jerusalem there, uh, and you will see on the left-hand side the Temple Mount. Uh, you'll see Gethsemane there, uh, and in between is the Kidron Valley. All right. 
um, and zooming in, uh, going onto the ground, uh, there we are on the left-hand side. We were looking north just now. On the left-hand side, looking west, there is the Temple Mount, uh, Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, uh, going down to the Kidron Valley there. Um, and uh, on the right-hand side, you'll see the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, see those trees there? There's the garden. Uh, there's a church built there now as well uh, on your right. Uh, just getting a little bit closer uh, to see those trees that are part of the garden. All right. Uh, and so now we will just uh, zoom out uh, to show it to you one more time uh, in its context. There we have it. Well, John doesn't give us the name of the garden. Uh, he simply calls it, uh, in verse 1, a garden. Now, it is a walled garden with olive trees, uh, probably owned by someone or a family who are supportive of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus and his disciples often go there when they were in Jerusalem. They, they did have a base in Bethany, about three kilometers away in the home of Mary and Martha, but this is probably their Jerusalem hangout, a private place where Jesus can teach them, where they could stay and rest even though it was outdoors. It was also a place where they could go and pray, away from the hustle and bustle of the city. And that's what Jesus does this night. Uh, the other Gospels record both his agonizing prayer uh, and the fact that the disciples fall asleep while he's praying. But John skips all those details and moves on to one more piece of information in verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus knows that Judas, one of his disciples, is going to betray him. And Jesus knows that Judas knows this is the place he habitually goes to. Yet, and yet Jesus goes there anyway. It's almost like he wants to be arrested. Judas knows that Jesus knows that he'll betray him, yet he does it anyway. Uh, he has it in verse 3. Uh, it, it, he has in, in verse 3 already procured a band of soldiers, some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, the word band there is actually refers to quite a large number of Roman soldiers. A full detachment would have been a thousand soldiers, but in practice it might have been less than 200. But still, a lot of soldiers to arrest one man. It might sound a little bit strange until you remember that if Jesus wasn't in the garden, they might have to go and arrest him in the city. And if they try to take him into custody in the city, well, it might have drawn a crowd. It might be all kinds of trouble. Uh, so you've got to make sure you've got enough FRU men there for the arrest. Uh, verse 3 also says that they've got lanterns and torches and weapons. Uh, weapons in case the disciples or the crowds put up a fight. Torches and lanterns in case Jesus runs away and they've got to search for him in the hills or among the trees or rocks in the valley. But Jesus makes it easy for them. Not only does he go to this place that Judas knows well, but it's also a quiet place away from the crowds. And he makes no attempts to hide and disappear into the hills or valleys. In fact, he actually goes out to meet the arresting party when they arrive. Verse 4 tells us that knowing all that would happen, Jesus comes forward. He takes the initiative and speaks to them as they come in. And he says to them, whom do you seek? Now, most of the party wouldn't have recognized him because they don't know him. Uh, though it might have been a bit of a surprise to see someone coming out of the garden like that. But, but when Jesus asks their question... They give him the answer in verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says to them, I am he. Well, that's how our translation translates it, to be grammatically correct. But the word literally that Jesus says is, I am. 
Now, this could just mean I am he, I am the one you're looking for, and that's probably how the arresting party would have understood it. But Jesus has used these words before, recorded here in the Gospel of John, to mean something far more profound. I am, in the Old Testament, is the name for God himself. In Exodus 3.13, Moses says to God, If the people of Israel say, What is your name? What shall I say? And God says, I am who I am. Tell the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And when those people come to arrest Jesus, Jesus says, I am. And even if no one else there got what he was saying, surely Judas, who had been with him when he'd made these big claims on previous occasions, would have got the meaning and stood even more condemned because of it. For John makes his point to mention his guilty presence just at this point, standing with them at the end of verse 5. And notice what happens when Jesus proclaims who he is. Uh, In verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Who's in control here? Judas? The contingent of soldiers? The officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees? People with weapons? Are the one who is able to knock them back and flatten the ground with just a word. Psalm 27 reads, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Jesus is confident. His enemies have the numbers. His enemies have the weapons. But he would only be arrested if he chooses to be. The soldiers quickly regain their composure. And what do you think they do? They go, wow, he really is God. No. Having experienced just a tiny bit of his power against them, restrained in the utmost, do they repent? No. Like Pharaoh at the time of Moses, they have hearts that are hard, though. When they recover, they will get up, they will dust themselves, they will continue on with their wicked task. And actually, many people like that are like that today as well, isn't it? We don't know how to take a warning. When we experience something of God's judgment in a small, restrained kind of way, it's it's, it's actually a warning of a big wrath to come. But what happens when we recover? We dust ourselves off. We prepare to sin again. Not like the whole world with the coronavirus. What we see in every pandemic, as in every disaster, is a caution that reminds us the world is not what it's meant to be. It is a small warning of the big judgment to come. And of course, while we take every precaution to prevent the virus spread, we must support the use of vaccines to get the pandemic under control. The big thing we must also do is repent and come back to God. But do you think the world is going to repent and come back to God? No. When all this is over, the world as a whole will dust itself off, continue in sin. Well, these people are not deflected from the job of arresting Jesus. And so when Jesus repeats his question, asking them again in verse 7, whom do you seek? They still say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus identifies himself again. I told you, he says in verse 8, I am he. He's not running away. This is his time. He will go with them 
even though they can't actually make him. But there's one thing he is concerned about, one thing he wants to ensure before he goes. The next part of verse 8. So if you seek me, let these men go. What a thoughtful and loyal way Jesus acts towards his disciples. He ensures that they are safe while he faces death alone. He allows himself to be arrested on his terms, and the terms he gives that those who arrest him must let his disciples go. And John shows us in verse 9 that Jesus was fulfilling his own words to the Father that he had prayed earlier. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now, if you go back to the context of Jesus' prayer in the previous chapter, he was talking about preserving them spiritually. And this helps us see why he wants them to be freed. For, for here in the garden, he protects them from arrest to preserve them spiritually. You see, being protected by Jesus doesn't necessarily mean not being arrested or being killed. In fact, it would be quite the opposite for most of these disciples. In the years to come, many would die for Jesus. But at this point, they're not able to. Their faith will not survive. They're not ready yet. This is not their time. Jesus is going to the cross alone, and he would die for them. Friends, Jesus really did care for his disciples, didn't he? They weren't just a crew that he used. They were his friends whom he loved. He would face the unjust punishment of these men alone so that they could go free. No greater love has a man than this, he said, but to lay down his life for his friends. And that's, that's what Jesus does for his disciples. And if Jesus loved his followers that much, do you think he loves us, his 21st century people, whom the Father has also given him, any less? The answer is no. For he died for us as well. And so we know that Jesus, who is, who is in as much control today as he was on that night, will care for us. He will not let us get tempted more than we can bear. Whatever trials that we face in this life, he will still be in control. And he will make sure that we make it to glory in the end. Now, as all this is going on, out comes our second main character, Simon Peter. Impulsive, blundering, zealous, loyal Simon. The one who said he would die for Jesus and really meant it. And now he's going to prove it. He's going to risk his own life to save Jesus. Like a hero, Simon Peter will make a stand. And what a stand that is. In verse 10, he tevis a straw, he draws it, he strikes the high priest's servant and cuts off his right ear. Here is Simon Peter, disciple extraordinaire, standing up to a couple of hundred Roman soldiers. I don't know if it's folly or faith. Maybe he thinks he can just create enough commotion to buy time for Jesus to escape. But whatever he's thinking, the servant, whose name is Malchus, is probably one of the few unarmed men in the company. And so he's the guy he attacks Versla. But that's not the way of Jesus. He's in control of the situation. He knows what he's doing doesn't need Peter to come and take over and start fighting for him and start chopping people's bits off. So in verse 11, he says to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Right in the Old Testament, the cup 
was a symbol of God's wrath. Drinking the cup was a metaphor for experiencing God's punishment for sin. Uh, Jesus knew his Father's will would be that he should take the sins of the world upon his shoulders, that he would bear the penalty of sin for all his people so that we wouldn't need to, that he would die for us, our representative and our substitute. Remember, no greater love has a man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did for his disciples. That is what Jesus did for us on the cross. For on the cross, he would drink the cup of God's full wrath against human sin as a human on behalf of humans. He would take our guilt, our punishment on our behalf and face the just punishment of God alone so that you and I can go free. And he doesn't just do it for us. There's something even more important to him than we are. He does it for us, not only because he loves us, but actually because he loves the Father and expresses that love in obedience to the Father's will. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And so Jesus, trusting and obeying the Father, allows himself to be arrested. So in verse 12, the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrest Jesus. They, they bind him, they tie him up, and they take him to Annas, in verse 13, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. And we'll hear more about them next week. So what have we seen today? We've seen Simon Peter, full of good intentions, though as we will see next week, his big bravado was a cover for a lot of fear. He wasn't in control and didn't really trust that Jesus was either. But Jesus loved Simon. And by the end of this gospel, he would make sure he's okay. That Simon would have to learn a lot of hard lessons first. But Jesus was in control, wasn't he? He is God. I am. Powerful over his enemies. Yet he did not use his control selfishly. He allowed himself to be arrested by his enemies to fulfill the Father's plan to save us. For the one who is in control uses his in control for obedience and love. And what about us? In many ways, we are like Peter, like Simon. We're not in control, and that, that can be scary. We face many uncertainties. Some of us are facing economic uncertainties due to the pandemic and the economy. Some of us are facing medical uncertainties due to issues in our health. Some of us are facing relational uncertainties, which is not helped by the distancing caused by the virus. And we, like Peter, may be tempted to lash out, to let our fears be expressed in bold acts that in the plain light of day are stupid or sinful and really express a lack of control in the one who really, a lack of trust in the one who really is in control. Let's not be like that. If God really loves us the way we see him love us in Christ, then we do not need to panic, no matter what happens. You and I don't need to be in control because he is, and he cares for us. And it's better for him to be in control anyway, isn't it? Because although we think we are wise, we aren't really. 
especially compared to him. He really is in control, even when it doesn't look like it. Remember the picture, 200 armed soldiers, one bound prisoner. Who is in control? The prisoner. God is in control, even when it doesn't look like it. And he even uses things that evil men do to ultimately fulfill his good purposes. His control doesn't mean ease for us any more than it meant ease for Jesus. It doesn't mean that everything will go well and there'll be no suffering before the glory. Oh no, didn't mean that for Jesus. Doesn't mean that for us either. But it does mean our ultimate future is secure. It does mean that whatever happens now is part of his plan for our good to make us more like Christ and prepare us for the glory that is to come. It does mean that we live day by day in the love and care of our Heavenly Father. And that when we're not in control, it's okay, because He is. He loves us, and we can trust Him. So trust Him, and don't freak out and do something wrong, like Peter. Trust the God who is in control. Now that doesn't mean that we passively allow evil people to do evil. No, 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 no. But it does mean that we will not do what is wrong to achieve what is right. We will seek to do good and to act with justice and integrity and trust God for the outcome. But the fact that God is sovereign doesn't mean there's no sense in which we have a measure of control in our own lives. There are many things in our lives which we think we can control, but actually we can't. But we do have some power, some influence, some authority, some responsibility. Some of us have relational power. We have influence in our family, church, society. Some of us have money to spend or give away. Some of us have skills that enable us to lead or influence others. Some of us have time which we can use at our discretion for good or for ill. What do we do with the power that we have? Let's not be like Judas, who used his knowledge to betray his master. Let's not be like the soldiers who persisted in their wrongdoing in spite of experiencing a taste of God's power against them. Let's not be like Peter, who used the bit of power that he had to do something for Jesus that Jesus really didn't want him to do. Instead, let us be like Jesus, who used his power unselfishly to love and save others in obedience to the Father. Will you trust God and obey Him with the power that you do have? And will that trust and obedience express itself in making loving sacrifices for the salvation of others? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign and good and that in spite of all appearances, you work all things for the good of your people. We thank you that you love us and care for us and that you've shown that love in giving your son to die for us. We know that you are worthy to be in control for you are worthy of all power, for you are wise, you are good and you alone are incorruptible. Please help us to trust you and do what is right, 
even when things are scary, when there's much uncertainty in our lives, and things are not going the way we want them to, and where we do have a measure of control, please help us to use it in a godly way for the salvation of others in obedience to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.